V1. Pull up. Pull up. Pull up. Terrain. Terrain. Pull up. Terrain. Welcome to the Flight Safety Detectives. Hosts John Golia and Greg Fife, two of the world's most respected aviation safety experts, talk all things related to aviation and aerospace. This podcast and the Flight Safety Detectives YouTube channel are brought to you by the Professional Aviation Maintenance Association, PAMA, and Avemco Insurance, a world-class provider of aviation insurance and your one-stop for all general aviation insurance needs. Get a customized quote at avemco.com or give them a call at 888-879-0389. Tell them you're a listener of the show and receive a 5% discount. Now it's time to buckle up because it's wheels up for the latest episode of Flight Safety Detectives. Well, hello, Todd. Here we are in another episode of Flight Safety Detectives, you and I, and Greg is off. I believe he's in Colorado, but he's off very down doing something. So it, uh, it'll be you and I, and I want to remind everybody that this show is uh, sponsored by Avemco in, in keeping with what we've been saying since our episode with the young lady that had a rental airplane and she damaged it. And we're going to talk about a rental airplane damage today. I want to remind everybody that Avemco can provide you with renter's insurance to protect you beyond where whatever the airline or the, the uh, operator owner of the airplane has. And, uh, and Todd, you can speak to that because you've done it. Yeah, I can indeed. And again, this is a revisiting uh, something I've talked about a couple of times before. That is, there's an aircraft that I rent on a regular basis that had been involved in an incident a few months ago that damaged the wing. The aircraft was fully repaired. It's fully flyable. And I have no hesitation flying that aircraft. But I did have an interest in just finding out what were the circumstances. If for no other reason, then the incident happened at the airport I fly into most often. So if there's something about that airport that I should know about that might be a hazard in the future, I want to know. If there was something about the conditions, the weather conditions that are frequently happening there that contributed to this, I wanted to know. And being a very data-driven person, I thought, well, let me see if there's something in the official records of the FAA or the NTSB. Just to recap, I had heard from my flying organization that the aircraft I had been in was in an incident. And I asked around about this aircraft because during an inspection before flight, I noticed that parts of the aircraft seemed new. And I thought, well, what's going on here? And I thought, okay, this was in a wingtip incident. No big deal because this airplane still flies at great. I have no qualms about flying it. I just had a general interest in what happened. So the first thing I did was I did a very easy thing. I typed the tail number of the aircraft into a search engine and saw what popped up. And what came up at first was something to do with Catherine's report. I clicked on it and it had some very, very basic information about where it occurred, the time and place. I thought, okay, this is consistent with what I'd heard. Where do I go to next? And in, you know, someone who looks at this from an outside perspective, I have my own way of looking for information. But insiders like yourself who had been part of this process for decades, there's probably other things going on that the average person should know about as far as who has what information and where. 
you know, the NTSB uh, is resource constraint. If you talk to them, that's, that's what they'll tell you. But they leave a lot of these incidents off to the FAA to do. And, and a lot of accidents. Most people don't realize that the vast majority of actual accidents are investigated by the FAA, not the NTSB. And they are, they're a different animal when the FAA does them. Uh, pretty close to factual. Who, what, when, where, and the why sometimes is not answered very well. And they don't do also dig the way the NTSB uh, is capable of. And that is, you know, the last 72 hours what the pilot was doing, you know, they don't always go for the toxicology testing, you know, so there's a lot of other things that the NTSB does routinely, oftentimes, that the FAA inspectors uh, do not perform. So there's different levels of these inspections. So if you see it, if something happens and it and a dragging a wingtip and damage it substantially that it's gonna be replaced uh, is certainly an accident, but you won't necessarily find it on the NTSB uh, website or their database because it, they didn't record it. And that, that was my experience. Uh, I, I looked at the NTSB database for this tail number in this location. There was nothing there, not a preliminary report, not a final report. So that, right. that's exactly my experience. Right. So, and, that, and that leads to some of the differences that we see in the number of accidents and the category uh, categories that they occur in. Oftentimes, when you we can, when you compare the NTSB's data with the FAA's data, with Captain's report data, and there's a number there's a number of other organizations that out there that collect accident information uh, more narrowly than the broad spectrum. You know, MBAA. Because uh, the the uh, couple of the magazines do their own tracking for accidents that sometimes use government data, sometimes use independently uh, ferreted out information. So it, if you really go dig down into an accident investigation, you've got to search far and wide uh, through a number of sources, and don't because you don't find it in one, don't think it doesn't exist. So. You know, you and I are very well experienced with that chasing down these animals because we get tons of emails every every week uh, recommending that we look at this accident or that accident. And then you go into the NTSB's database, you can't find it. And you go to the FAA, you can't find it. And then you start going down the, the, the trail trying to find out where it is because you've got some detail. you got somebody that verified that it happened. And now you've got to try to find the the little nugget wherever it is. But I, I've been concerned about this for 30 plus years. This type of issue is how much data are we losing? You know, we have a data-driven system for safety in this country and, and mostly around the world. And if you have insufficient data, poor quality data, data with big holes in it for facts, What's coming out the other end? It's not the most accurate data you want. And what do we do with the, the data that comes out on the other end? And the FAA and other people, businesses, spend a lot of money generating training programs based upon that data that comes out the other end. And if it's not accurate, are we wasting money? 
Are we spending money in areas that we don't need to spend them where they could uh, have more bang for the buck if we put it in a different area? Because it, but because the data isn't as, as uh, finite as it needs to be, uh, we're missing those opportunities. So and it's- This is something that you, know, you and I have been deal- dealing with for decades. In fact, when I wrote my first book, which was called Understanding Aviation Safety Data, it was basically a book about what's the process I use and my colleagues use to chase down information about accidents. So I thought, okay, I wrote about this. Let me do my own process. And one of the resources I, I talk about then that still exists now is the FAA's information that, about incidents. And they have a very nice database that is very limited in what they put out there. But one of the limitations is if it's over 10 business days, you might not find it. So in the event uh, I'm talking about, I found out about it well over 10 days after the event, and I went to the website, there was nothing there. And I thought, okay, in most cases, this is about where I'd end my search because if I'm just casually looking at some event of this level of damage and no injuries, uh, my level of interest isn't high. But I had a vested interest. This is an aircraft I had flown in. This is an aircraft I would continue to fly in. And by the way, I flew in the aircraft before it had the incident. I flew in the aircraft after it was repaired. One of the reasons why I have full faith in what was done to it is that I noticed no difference in flying characteristics. But be that as it may, I thought, I tried to go broad. I went Catherine's report. I went NTSB. I went FAA. Now it's time to go deep. And this brings up an issue, again, you alluded to, accessibility versus availability. A lot of the basic information is accessible, Catherine's report, et cetera, et cetera excuse me, a lot of it is available. That is, there's data out there, but it's accessible in limited ways. Catherine's report, very limited. The FAA incident database, very limited. NTSB decided not to put on it. It is available. How do you get to it? That's where the Freedom of Information Act came in for me. I did a request. I got a set of data, including a very good narrative description of what happened. And I thought that was the end of it. A few days ago, I got another email from the FAA saying, oh, by the way, we found some more things for you. You mentioned photographs. We found photographs. So now, and you'll see this in in the video version of the show, there are a number of photographs of the damage that was on the aircraft. And I thought that was very instructive for me because I had my own mental picture of what a bent wingtip would look like. Then I had the actual data that was out there. And John, you reviewed some of these pictures. And what's your impression looking at the level of damage that you saw on this aircraft? That's substantial. I mean, we're looking at, at four or five feet of the wing, at least from the picture, uh, that severely wrinkles. So it, it had a pretty good uh, uh, strike. I mean, I've worked on a number of airplanes that are ground loops that had less damage than that airplane. So he took a pretty good hit on that wing. So it... Uh, he had to have himself pretty, pretty uh, messed up at that point in landing. But you know, as you're going to go on and say, the the uh, he just accomplished a number of landings successfully. So what's different? What was the difference in this landing than the previous ones that he was so successful at? Having that information could be helpful. Could be helpful to the to the community in general, but it also could be helpful to the airport. Uh, you know, 
with the runway and, and what's around it. And maybe there's some reasons. You know, one of the things as you were talking about this earlier, one of the things that I think of often when we talk about the environments around airports today, with so many buildings on the perimeters of, of airports. In Boston here, we have a rather big complex in Copley Square called Prudential Center. And when they built that complex, there was a spot in the open area, like a, like a courtyard between these big buildings where people could walk and congregate. We've actually had people injured being picked up by uh, the winds that were being redirected and changed because of the high rise buildings. And they've since closed it in uh, to prevent those kinds of uh, injuries and issues. But something that was not foreseen when they built the buildings, that the impact it would have on uh, existing environmental conditions, meaning the wind. So, you know, there's an airport in New Jersey that I just had a conversation with somebody yesterday about uh, the buildings going up along the edge. And the developers, say, the developers were telling the potential occupants of the buildings that uh, don't worry about the airport, well, it's gonna be gone. Uh, we're gonna develop that airport and, and that airplane is gonna, airport's gonna be gone. Well, it hasn't gone. It's been there for quite a while and it's probably gonna be there for a while longer because of federal grants and federal money in it. The, the local community is not gonna be able to get rid of it. But, but the land has become very valuable. And those high rise buildings for all we know could be having an effect on, on the wind, the wind direction and the velocity. Uh, nobody's checking it. Nobody's doing anything about it. So accidents like this, could have some impact if somebody in the in the safety organization of the aviation world were to take a look at that. And that, that speaks to something I read uh, separately some time ago, basically. And this is something I got clued into when we went to AirVenture in 2021, that a lot of smaller general aviation airports around the country is a real attractant for places like Amazon, which are building warehouses and distribution centers at those airports. Now, depending on the airport, you could have a shift in wind patterns or a shift in turbulence going across the runway, depending on where the building is, is put up. And without going into detail, there are very specific regulations as to where you can build things if it might uh, impact the uh, flight path as you're taking off and landing. I have seen very few, if any, federal regulations with respect to how building structures could affect wind patterns or local turbulence, et cetera. On, uh, on runways. And, and getting back to the uh, incident with the wing strike, um, what you said about how this uh, pilot was performing, the narrative was very, very instructive. It said basically, there were, I believe, seven takeoff and landing attempts in the loop, which were successful. And the last one was where they had the problem. And this was an instructional flight. And the narrative specifically said that the instructor took over the aircraft after it bounced the first time. So basically, and you can see it on the picture that we have on the video version of this, it was a fairly stable number of patterns that were flown with apparently the student pilot at the controls. Uh, so I saw nothing there that stood out as, oh, this was like unstable patterns, whatever. No, it looked like things were going quite well. And the instructor took over at the end and basically was on the controls when the wingtip struck. 
So the narrative very much focused on the instructor, the instructor's decisions, the actions taken, and left the student pilot out of it, which I thought was an interesting uh, way of going about it, but I think I think it's an appropriate thing. It's like, this was a person who was in control of the aircraft at the time the swing strike hit. And so I think it was appropriate personally that they focus on that person. Now, what you said about the learning potential of this, sure, I heard about this event in my organization, but I didn't have anything like the level of detail and certainly no photographs of it. So the public, not the public, the Freedom of Information Act information had a lot of information that was very useful. Some information that was inappropriate for a learning environment, for example, this report actually had the name, birth date, certificate number of the pilot, which was irrelevant with respect to how are we going to learn from this? Because it was not a personal thing. It was not something where the pilot was pointed out, oh, this pilot was incompetent. It was a set of circumstances. And there was no, no FAA sanction, no pulling of a certificate, no fines, nothing like that. It was one of these things. It was a, an accident and something that we can learn from. And now that I have the narrative, now that I have the, the photographs, it gives me a fuller picture. And, you know, I'm crossing my fingers. Maybe there's more stuff the FAA has that they'll eventually dig out and give me from a Freedom of Information Act request. One more part to the story. I thought, well, gee, I didn't see anything in the NTSB website about this, but what if they have information but didn't publish it? So I put in a Freedom of Information Act request to the NTSB about this very same incident. So we'll see what happens. It'll be interesting to see if they have it and they just haven't indexed it in there. Yeah, it's just, you know, information is power. You know, it's the power to fix problems. It's the problem, the power to uh, change flight training for pilots. It's very, very meaningful in the system we have for transportation safety in the United States. And one of the things I mentioned earlier is that I, this is the long game we're playing. That is, this event happened. It took a very short time for this event to happen. It took a few days or weeks to repair the airplane. The airplane's gonna fly for years. But the lessons that can be learned could be valuable decades from now. So let's say there's an event or more than one event that you have a deep interest in. Do what you think is necessary to come to grips with that to understand it, whether it's Freedom of Information Act requests, whether it's interviewing people, whether it's researching the internet, there is nothing that says you have to stop looking at events. There's nothing that says that you can't learn something from events. And there's definitely nothing that says you have to be a pilot or a mechanic or someone in the business to do this. If you have an interest and you have an inquisitive mind, go for it. Yes. And actually, if we get young people involved in doing the uh, research into the data, they'll become hooked on aviation, which is something we're having a big problem doing today, is getting enough people hooked on aviation to, uh, to give us the manpower to grow, because the demand is there. And the hooking on aviation, you don't have to be an aviation professional or a pilot, a mechanic, or something, an air traffic controller. Let's say your thing is you like to put together TikTok videos. I don't put together TikTok videos. I barely watch TikTok videos, but I hear it's a very popular thing. Let's say you have your own spin on it, whether it's serious or not so serious. You know what? 
every point of view is useful. Now, if you do something that's inappropriate and not helpful to anybody, that's one thing. But then again, being a troll doesn't matter what the subject is. If you have a, an intent to ridicule people, make fun of people, or to denigrate people or organizations, that's not going to be helpful to aviation. But if you have any other point of view, I don't care what it is. I might check it out. You know what? You, you just tickled my memory a little bit. Back uh, in my USA days, I remember that we had uh, 6,000 odd pilots, 6,500 pilots. We had about the same number of mechanics. And we had a little bit more, more like uh, 8,000 flight attendants. So that's 20,000 people roughly. But we had almost 100,000 employees at USAIR at that time. So that meant there's, a, you know, these numbers are very fudgy, but roughly 80,000 other jobs in aviation that don't require uh, certification from the FAA. We had IT people, and I plan as provisioning people, we call them stores on most airlines, I, you know, buyers for equipment. You know how much goods and services the airlines buy every year? A huge, huge number. Just think about, well, it used to be the food, but think about all the other things that they buy that are used and consumed on every single flight. So there are tons and tons of jobs in the thousands for people that have an interest in aviation, but don't have the professional standards, the skills, the pilot rating, mechanic, and so on, that they could fill. And, uh, you know, so if you love aviation, but you don't, you're not a pilot, you don't want to be a pilot, you don't want to be a mechanic, there's a ton of other jobs to do. My own daughter works at the airport and started it, uh, and actually she started working for me in my own company, and then she went to an FBO, then she went to an airline. And now she's a manager, station manager, multiple stations manager. So there's, there's uh, all kinds of opportunity in aviation for both FAA certified people and non-certified people. And if you're a member, if you have someone, close member of your family who's involved in aviation, in an unpaid, you know, voluntary way, just like with any other family business, if you can help out your sister, your uncle, whatnot, understand some aspect of it, you happen to have a knack for it, then do it. I mean, especially if you have someone older in your family who's good at the internet, but you're someone who's younger than me in the family who's great at the internet, help them out, help them find information, help them put things out if they want to do a Freedom of Information Act request or do a YouTube video or you know, just do a you know, personal reminiscence video about some aspect of what they did that they want to share with the world. You know, there could be folks out there who have stories that are worth hearing. You don't have to go on a television network or cable show or whatever to have it heard. You can take your phone, do a video, put it on YouTube, even if the only people you're sharing with is other members of the family. It helps them understand why is it that Uncle Joe wanted to go into this business as opposed to what we went into? Or why is this person spending huge amounts of money trying to be an airline pilot? Well, hey, let them tell their story on, on film and put it out there. Todd, we still get a number of emails from people that want to know how you're doing with your training, your return to flight. So what's, what's the latest update? You flew yesterday? 
I flew a couple of days ago and I laid off for about a month for a bunch of reasons because of scheduling and I was on travel. So uh, rather than going into um, uh, things specific for instrument flying, it was basically basic stick and rudder, rudder skills, which I was practicing, which uh, fortunately, because I've been doing self-study, including doing simulation on X-Plane, which is good for procedures training. It's not good for getting the physical feel of the airplane. I felt more comfortable returning after about a month off than I did before. And I also did some work to make sure that I had a more consistent schedule week after week, at least a couple of times where I'm either in an aircraft or in a simulator. And by simulator, I mean not my X-Plane I have at home but an actual simulator that can be counted toward my hours necessary to get an instrument rating. And the way the rules work, you can do up to 20 hours of your instruction prior to your uh, instrument uh, certificate in a certified trainer. So I talked with my instructor, I told him about where I wanna do this. He understands that organization, he knows the uh, instructors who are there for logistical reasons. He can't be the instructor in the trainer, but he trusts the trainers the CFIs who are available to do that. So uh, again, there is a stick and rudder skills. There is the management skills. There's the, how do we make sure that I'm doing this in a way that adheres to the regulations and allows me to maintain a certain level of competency? This one month or so off was something I didn't plan for, but circumstances got in the way. I redoubled my effort to make sure that I'm either in an actual airplane or in a simulator that counts towards my certificate hours. And I wanna consistently do this until I get to the point where I take my test and get my certification. Great, good update. Well, I think we've talked this subject to death for now. I'm sure we'll be back on, uh, maybe not this subject, but one's right close to it because it just, it seems like we repeat our accidents over and over and over. We don't, we don't seem to be leaving them behind us very well. Well, since we don't have uh, Greg here to do the close part of the closing, why don't you uh, start the closing and I'll give my standard closing. Well, uh, very few words I like to give. You heard me talk on and on about how I did this with Freedom Inform Information Act requests, et cetera. If you're interested in this sort of approach, do something on your own. I'm not saying make a request. Why don't you go online to the NTSB or FA site and see what you have to do to do it. And then if you think of an a, a event that is of interest to you, take some action. By the way, it's probably gonna cost you absolutely nothing unless there's a humongous amount of documentation. So you've got nothing to lose. Okay. And in closing, I would like to remind everybody that if you're gonna go flying, do a very thorough planning session. You know, we've done a number of accidents so far uh, in this program that have pilots that have taken off from an airport and lost an engine. Some of them right over the airport immediately after the liftoff and with outcomes that weren't very good. Some tried to return to the field doing the impossible turn, which is not advisable. And it was clear that they didn't plan ahead that if I do lose an engine on takeoff, where am I gonna put this airplane? Looking at the terrain around the airport and so on and so on. So please do a good job of pre-planning 
in planning for the unexpected. When you hit the weather, remember, it's not just weather where you're leaving from and where you're gonna land, it's the weather in between. And if you're going any distance, uh, it can change a lot between the time you take off and the time you get there. We have a lot of tools available to us today to take care of the weather problems so that you can identify them as a pilot, identify those problems and avoid them. But we see too, all too often that pilots don't do that as good as they are as well as they should. And when you get to the airport, revisit your planning session. When you go out to your airplane, do a thorough walk around, touch your airplane, wiggle the flight controls. You know, don't forget tire pressures. We've had a, several problems this year with tires on airplanes being low. And after you get in the airplane, make sure you do the adequate pre-flight in the, in the, before you take off. After you take off, put that head of yours on a swivel. Uh, Mid-airs around the airport are just growing and growing this year for whatever reason. I'm beginning to think it's because we have more and more people, students flying, but it's not fair to the students to say it's their fault because we just had one that did involve a student, but it wasn't his fault. It was a much more experienced pilot that hit, hit, hit his airplane. The student had no idea or no way to see the airplane coming, quartering him from the rear. So it is a responsibility for a pilot to keep your head screwed on right. It's a risky business line. So please, please pay attention. Follow the procedures, keep your eyes open, and fly safely. To listen or watch more episodes of this show, go to FlightSafetyDetectives.com, the Flight Safety Detectives YouTube channel, or your favorite place to listen to podcasts. To contact John and Greg about the show, send them an email at flightsafetydetectives at gmail.com. And remember, for aviation insurance needs, contact Avemco Insurance at avemco.com or give them a call at 888-879-0389. Mention Flight Safety Detectives and receive a 5% discount. Thanks for listening to the Flight Safety Detectives, and remember to always fly safe.